Pastor Ed will be with us next Sunday. And so if you love the guitar as an instrument, you will hear it again next Sunday. In the 1990s, there was a Gallup poll. And in this Gallup poll, they surveyed those who are churched versus those who are unchurched. And this Gallup poll is very interesting because in it, they're saying that those who are churched is really there's no difference between those who are in the church and those who are outside of the church. Those who profess faith in Christ and those who are not Christians at all. And this is what this Gallup poll says, quote, There's little difference in ethical behavior between the church and the unchurched. There's as much pilferage and dishonesty among the churched as the unchurched. And I'm afraid that applies pretty much across the board. Religion, per se, is not really life-changing. People cite it as important, for instance, in overcoming depression, but it doesn't have primacy in determining behavior. So this Gallup poll back in the early 90s is really a sad commentary upon the evangelical American church. Now you fast forward many, many years. We're now in the year 2022. And I think it's safe to say that not much has changed. Maybe it's actually gotten worse. Our text for today is Luke chapter 3 in those first 14 verses that we read. And the sermon is entitled, The Call to Repent. And the main point that I want to get across today is godly repentance leads to a changed life pleasing to God. So I'm not talking about, and we're not talking about any type of repentance. We're not talking about repentance that happens in the Roman Catholic Church or any other religion. We're talking about a biblical repentance. That's why it's listed as a godly repentance that leads to a changed life pleasing to God. And let me just say off the bat that if the Spirit of God is convicting you this morning, that's actually a blessing from the Lord. You need to take that seriously. Because the danger of preaching this type of message is that's a message that somebody else needs to hear. My cousin, my neighbor, my coworker, my relative, my best friend. But in reality, you need to hear that message. And I need to hear this message. So let's not think about the other person that needs to hear this message today. We need to actually listen to it, strain our ears, and apply it to our own lives. The background we see in verse, really, 1 and 2. The Bible has a way of date and time stamping history. And in this case, we see this date time stamped when there are five rulers and two priests that are on the scene. And why this is important is that it gives us the background of the political climate at the time. But it also gives us the spiritual climate. So the political and the spiritual climate during this time frame. There's going to be a lot of similarities with what we see here in the Western world especially in America. But of these five rulers, there's one who is numero uno. He is the big dog, so to speak. It says, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, Claudius, Caesar, Augustus. This is the Roman emperor. 
The Roman emperor ruled for many, many years, starting in A.D. 14. So at that time, the New Testament world was ruled by the Roman Empire. And the one who ruled the Roman Empire was this emperor. Which leads us to the second ruler that's listed, Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate is known as a procreator or governor. That's probably a better word. And as governor of this Roman province, especially Judea. The reason that Pontius Pilate is important, because in Mark chapter 15, Pontius Pilate is the one who gave the order to have Jesus crucified. So we see the spiritual climate there. The third ruler that we see in our background is Herod, Herod Antipas. He ruled for roughly 35 years, and he's the son of Herod the Great. And Herod Antipas was also a governor. But if you look at the verse, he was a tetrarch. A tetrarch is a fancy word for saying a petty prince or a puppet, right? You know what a puppet is, right? Somebody's holding the strings up here, and this puppet down here dances. And so Herod Antipas is a petty king. He looks like a king, but he's not a king. So Herod Antipas, the reason he's important is he was the one responsible for having John the Baptist executed, where he had his head separated from his body in Matthew chapter 14. Which leads us to the fourth ruler, Philip. Philip was the brother of Herod Antipas. They're both sons of Herod the Great. And Philip was the governor of two areas, the land of Iterea, which is north of Galilee, and Trachonitis, which is northeast of Galilee. Which leads us to the fifth ruler, which doesn't say, the Bible doesn't say too much about this person, but his name is Lysanias. He's the governor of Abilene, which is north of that area. So when we look at a map at the back of your Bible, so we see Judea in the south, we see Galilee in the north, we see Iterea to the north of that, and Trachonitis to the east of that, and Abilene to the north of that. If you take Judea all the way to Abilene, that's a massive amount of land. So what do we have here? What we have is five rulers that comprise a large part of the land, and these are the political rulers, and we see the spiritual climate of this time. But this is done under two priests. One is the high priest, Annas. He ruled in A.D. 6 for many years. And then he disappointed the Roman emperor. And the Roman emperor kicked him out of his office. But what high priests are able to do is that they're able to appoint their replacement. Normally, their relatives. And in this case, Annas appoints Caiaphas to replace him. Caiaphas is his son-in-law. So it's all in the family, so to speak. So Caiaphas is important because later on, as you read the gospel story, Caiaphas is the prominent one who was making the decision to have Jesus condemned in Matthew 26 and John 18. He's a prominent player in Jesus' condemnation. So with that being said, those five rulers, those two priests, 
we see the political climate, we see the spiritual climate. And during this time frame, at that time, is when the word of God came to who? Came to John, the son of Zechariah. That reminds us of Luke chapter 1. We're talking about John the Baptist. So the word of God came to John the Baptist in the wilderness. And this is what's, what's really happening here is that John the Baptist is being commissioned, so to speak, for a ministry, a very specific ministry, the ministry of repentance. There are three important points that are in our text today. You see this in your bulletin. Number one, no repentance, no forgiveness. That's verse number three. Point number one is going to be a little bit longer than normal, so just bear with me. But point number two is faithful servants boldly tell the truth. That's in verses 4 through 9. That's a shorter point. And then third and finally, point number three, genuine repentance genuinely changed life in verses 10 through 14. So number one, no repentance, no forgiveness. Read with me in verse 3. And he, referring to John, went into all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. See, if Gentiles wanted to be part of the Jewish community, Gentiles needed to be baptized. And Jews strongly encouraged it. However, John is not talking about Gentiles getting baptized. It's the opposite. He's saying to the Jews who were there at the time, you think the Gentiles need to be baptized? I'm talking about you. You need to be baptized as well as the Gentiles. So John was preaching the exact opposite of what the Jews were thinking. And so what's the difference here? The difference is the heart. The heart of the matter is the heart. Has the heart been changed by God or not? If the heart has been changed by God, then something needs to happen. If the heart has not been changed by God, then there's no action that's needed. And for some people... The second half of this verse, verse 3, is somewhat confusing. Some read this and believe that by being baptized, they automatically become part of the Christian community. They automatically have their sins forgiven, all their sins. They automatically become Christians. This is called baptismal regeneration. Baptismal regeneration. This is unbiblical, by the way. It is 100% certified unbiblical. In other words, it's wrong. I've shared this story with you. I think it's worth noting again that during my undergrad program, I was tasked to write a paper on a group of people, religious people, who were opposite of my denomination. And at that time, we had this book called The White Pages. Some of you are not even aware of white pages or yellow pages, but I dated myself. So I opened up the white pages, and I just did one of these. I think I'm going to write a paper on this church. It happened to fall. I'm not saying you should do that, by the way, okay? But it fell upon a four-square church. And so there is a four-square church that believes in this doctrine of baptismal regeneration. And so I show up, I'm supposed to observe everything, I'm supposed to write down a lot of notes and write a paper on it. 
And they had three baptismal candidates. The first one was interviewed on a large screen, and they said, well, why do you want to be baptized? So that I could have my sins forgiven. The second candidate, why do you want to be baptized? So that I can go to heaven. The third candidate said, I want to be baptized because I want to have my sins forgiven and go to heaven. At least the third candidate was more thorough in his response. But I thought to myself, this is highly unbiblical. This is wrong. I mean, it's great for my paper. I got an A on my paper, but this is terrible. People are actually on their way to hell for believing this stuff. Because the real question is, what does the Bible say about baptism? What does the Bible say about repentance? What does the Bible say about forgiveness? That's the real question. So why does someone need to be forgiven? Here's what's implied in the text. is because human beings who are image bearers of God have broken God's law. They violated God's law and God's will. And to break God's law means that they are law breakers. There's a penalty that is required. Why? Because God is holy. And because God is holy, we break his holy law. Therefore, there is a punishment. Now, when we hear that word, punishment, we don't like to hear that word. But we know that it's true. When we break the law of God, we know that in our hearts something is wrong. We've sinned against God, our Creator. There is a penalty, and this penalty is always death, albeit not immediately. The punishment for violating God's law is death. It's the life of a person that's required, because the one who sins shall surely die. So with this type of background, we need to define forgiveness. Forgiveness is to pardon, is to remove the guilt from the person who's broken the law, is to remove the guilt that comes from sin. So when a person breaks the law of God, there's a debt that is owed to God. And that debt is a sin debt. And it comes in the form of this person's life who broke the law of God. That's why there's judgment. If you ever wonder, why do we die? Why does the human body break down due to cancer or some other disease or some other sickness? The biblical answer is because of sin. The one who sins shall surely die. Has anybody in this room not ever sinned? The answer is, we've all sinned. All have fallen short of the glory of God. That's Romans 3.23. So, those who break the law deserve judgment. And when they are judged, the rightful punishment is God's judgment against sin. The reason that we don't think that sin is a big deal is because we don't realize who we've sinned against. If you've sinned against your spouse, you will sleep on the couch. If you sin against the policeman, he's going to cuff you and take you to CCDC, this nice room with lots of bars. 
If you sin against the judge, the judge has the right to put you in prison for life. And how much more is God, who is the judge of the entire universe? See, the higher you go on this scale, the bigger the punishment. The problem is our sin clouds our vision and our minds and our hearts. We don't see who we've sinned against. And that's why when we sin, we're like, yeah, that's sin, no big deal. You can say that while you're alive. But on your last breath, you will not say that. You will not say that at all. God has every right to judge sin. Why? He's the creator of your life. He's the creator of the universe. He's the creator of the law. Therefore, he has every right to judge. God is holy. He's altogether different. He's not even on the radar. He's not even on the map. Who who is man compared to God? Nothing. God is holy. He has no sin in him. He doesn't think like you, act like you, react like you. He is completely off the map. God is holy. God is righteous. Everything that he says is right. Everything that he does is right. No one can ever accuse God of doing anything wrong. That's why when the Bible describes God as righteous, that means everything God says and does is right, perfectly right. And God is just. God gave you the law. It's in your heart. You know when lying is wrong. You know when stealing is wrong. You know when jealousy is wrong. You don't need Pastor Rolo on a Sunday morning telling you, hey, brother, sister, you know jealousy is wrong. You know stealing is wrong. You know it already. That's God's law. In your heart. And the Spirit of God is convicting you of that sin. And so you can never say, God, you're judging me unfairly. No, it's in your heart. You know you've sinned against God and you know what you deserve. And it's not the love of God, it's the judgment of God. That's what you deserve. That's why when the Bible says that God is just, He judges perfectly, not on broken scales, in man's methods, in man's standards, in man's Thoughts of what is right and wrong. God judges perfectly because he is the perfect one. God's law reflects God's holiness. What requires of you and what's required of me. And what's required of us in our relationship to God. So sinners need to be forgiven. And if they're going to be forgiven and right standing with God, they need to have all their sins forgiven, not some. All. So now let's define repentance. Repentance. One definition says this, to change one's way of life as the result of a complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. It's a complete change of thought. Before you became a Christian, we would all agree that we loved our sin. We may not admit that, but we would say we love our sin. And we hated God and His holiness and His truth and His law. But then the Spirit of God convicted you of your sin. God gave you grace and mercy instead of judgment because He judged His Son on your behalf. And now the sin that you used to love 
you now hate that sin. And the God that you used to hate, you now love this God who created you and saved you for his glory. That's repentance. Biblical repentance. Godly repentance. That you went from over here, the darkness, the domain of darkness, and God transferred you into his marvelous light in Christ. In other words, repentance is a heartfelt sorrow for sin. It's a renouncing of sin. It's a sincere commitment to forsake sin and to walk in obedience to Christ. That's what biblical, godly repentance is. I'm afraid we don't think about repentance too much. We use God's love and God's grace as a license to sin. We use God's goodness to dabble with sin. We use God's patience to coddle sin. We use God's mercy to embrace sin. No, brothers and sisters. I'm not preaching Christian perfectionism. What I'm preaching is, what is your heart attitude towards sin? 2 Corinthians 7, verse 9 says this, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Do you have a godly sorrow for your sin? Do you have a godly sadness? For your sin? If you do, that is God's grace and kindness to you because it leads you to repentance. It's a complete change of thought. The way you used to think about sin, you don't think about it anymore. You think in biblical terms. You think in holy terms. You live your life practically in holy terms. It does not mean you'll never sin again in this life. But what it does mean is that when you sin against God, who loved you enough to give you his son, you say, I can't do this anymore. I can't live like this anymore. God saved me. God loved me. God gave me Jesus. And I can't live live like this anymore. I can't talk like this anymore. I can't have my relationships like this anymore. Do you have that godly sorrow that leads to a biblical repentance? Repentance, by the way, has three aspects. And I hope you write this down. Three aspects to repentance. There's an intellectual aspect. There's an emotional aspect. And there's a personal aspect. So in the intellectual aspect of repentance, it's understanding that sin is wrong. We know that. We agree with that. But yet we suppress the truth in unrighteousness many times. So intellectual is understanding that sin is wrong. But there's an emotional aspect. The emotional aspect is that we have an emotional approval of the teaching of scriptures regarding sin. A sorrow for sin and a hatred for sin. So we say, whatever the Bible teaches regarding sin, we agree. There's an emotional approval. But also, there's a personal aspect. 
There's a personal decision to turn from sin. Remember, remember, biblical repentance is renouncing sin. It's renouncing sin, and it's a decision of the will to forsake it and to live a life in obedience to Christ as your Savior, as our Savior and Lord. So, biblical repentance is absolutely non-negotiable in the Word and in our lives. We must grow as Christians that we would love the things of Christ more and more as He gives us life and breath and being this side of heaven. As you're growing in Christ, you should love God's holiness more and hate sin more. So biblical repentance is a total change in thought and in behavior. It should lead to a godly lifestyle. It's a new self. It's a new behavior. It's a deep regret over our previous sinful lives. Those of you who have been saved by God's grace know that you have committed sin so wicked, so heinous, so gross that you're ashamed to share it with your best friend. But yet, God's grace in Christ died for that sin. All your sins. So I'm not going to stand up here and say, if you have shown biblical repentance in your life for three years straight or five years straight or ten years straight, that you have a biblical repentance. I'm not going to stand up here and say that. But what I, I, but what I will say is this. Do you have a godly sorrow and godly sadness for your sin? Are you broken over your sin? Do you understand that you've sinned against God? By the way, repentance is not enough for you to be saved. It's a good start, but it's not enough. You still need to believe unto Christ for salvation. You need to put your full faith and confidence and trust in the Savior, Jesus Christ. As your Savior and as your Lord, you must do this. This is a personal responsibility. Repentance is not enough. Acts 20, 21 says this, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith and trust in the Bible are always connected for salvation. They're always connected for salvation. And so when we talk about biblical regeneration, that's what it is. See, if you turn away from your sins, which is a good thing, that's biblical repentance, you turn away from your sins, but you trust in Muhammad, you're not a Christian. You trust in Joseph Smith, you're not a Christian. Trust in Charles Taze Russell, you're not a Christian. You trust in the Church of Scientology, you're not a Christian. You may be saying, well, Pastor Rollo, that's pretty exclusive. Biblical Christianity is exclusive. There's no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. But if you trust in Jesus and hold on to him with everything that you have, your hope, your faith, your confidence is, is in him for your salvation. But yet, you hold on to your sin at the same time. 
And you say, I'm not willing to let go of my drug addiction or any addiction or my pornography or my anger or my pride. Guess what? You're not biblically regenerated either. Biblical regeneration is two sides of the same coin. You must let go of your sin and you must trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. That's biblical regeneration. As opposed to baptismal regeneration. Baptismal regeneration is let's find a bunch of water, let's dunk this human being, and wham, like Emerald Lagasse, bam, you're a Christian. No, not at all. If that's what the Bible said, I would take each and every one of you and dunk you right now. I would do it in a loving way, obviously. But that's not what the Bible preaches or teaches. But faith and trust, or I should say repentance and trust, are always deeply connected. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary, are you tired? Are you tired of living your life your way? Are you tired of thinking that your way is always better than God's way and then you end up with a broken heart? You lose a lot of time and waste a lot of money? Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. We love that part, don't we? Jesus is going to give me rest. Physical rest, spiritual rest. I love this verse, Pastor Rolo, but did we read the second verse? Verse 29, take my yoke upon you. In an agricultural society, to take a yoke is a piece of equipment for two animals that you put it on the neck of one, you put it on the neck of the other, and both of them walk together, same pace, same direction, same vision, same life. You want rest in Jesus? That means you're yoked to Jesus. That means you're submitted to Jesus' ways. That means you obey Jesus, not out of a heart of compulsion, but a heart of love for the salvation that you've received in Christ. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Praise God. Praise God. So godly repentance is turning away from sin and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. So we've talked about forgiveness of sins. We've talked about biblical repentance. And now baptism. Baptism. The verb baptize and the noun baptism occurs 96 times in the New Testament. It is a prominent theme in the New Testament. To baptize or baptism. And baptism is to employ water in a ceremonial act. It's, to, it's the act of dipping or full immersion. If you want to write down scripture references, I would encourage you to write down Matthew 3, verse 16. Matthew 3, verse 16, and John 3. 23, John 3, 23. But biblical baptism is full immersion. 
Acts 8.36. 8.36, we see a model of this. The model is this. People hear the gospel. They believe the gospel. And then they identify with Christ publicly by getting baptized. Hear the gospel, saved, identify with Christ as Lord and Savior through biblical baptism, full immersion. Acts 8.36, And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? If you remember that, the Ethiopian eunuch was reading the Isaiah scroll, couldn't understand it, until a Christian came to him and explained the gospel, that the Messiah of Isaiah 52.53, the suffering servant, is Jesus the Christ. And then the eunuch says, look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? What's implied here is that he heard the gospel, believed the gospel, and then he identified with Christ through biblical baptism or full immersion. Acts 2.41, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So what happened? These 3,000 souls that were added to the church First, they heard the word of God. They believed the word of God, and as a result, they were baptized. They were identified with Christ. Acts 8, 12. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. They believed the message that Philip delivered. He talked about the kingdom of God. He talked about the name of Jesus Christ. They believed, and then what happened? They were baptized. Acts 18.8, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. Crispus heard the word of God, believed the gospel, and was baptized. That's the model of the New Testament. Even in our own 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, in chapter 29 of baptism, it states, Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament, ordained by Jesus Christ, to be unto the party baptized a sign of his fellowship with him in his death and resurrection, of his being grafted into him, of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. So to be baptized is to identify with Christ publicly, and it's a sign that this person is dead to the old life and raised to a new life in Christ. So the act of baptism doesn't save you. The mere act of being baptized doesn't save you. Oh, by the way, the mere act of a sinner's prayer does not save you. Let me go ahead and add that. Well, you may say, well, God genuinely changed my heart when I said this canned, wrote prayer. That's because of God's grace. It's not because of that prayer. It's because of God's grace, God's kindness, God's mercy to you. See, when you ask people, how do you know that you're saved? I said this prayer on this day, this time, this year. But the Bible never says, if you say this prayer, you'll be saved. The Bible talks about call unto God 
cry out to God for salvation. Fall upon his grace. So the act of baptism or any other ritual, religious deed, in itself doesn't make anybody right with God. We're talking about salvation. There's no forgiveness in those deeds. There's no love. There's no mercy. So baptism, therefore, is symbolic. It's symbolic of what? It's symbolic of a ceremonial cleansing. It's purification, but it's on the basis of what? This is the basis of repentance. Baptism is a ceremonial rite, per se, that is symbolic that the person has been saved by God's grace. They've turned away from their sins, biblical repentance, and now they're identifying with Christ. Let's go back to verse 3. Baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins is not how someone gets saved. I want to make that clear. Baptism is not how you get saved. But the emphasis is the message of salvation, not baptism. It's truth that saves you. It's the gospel that saves you. It's Jesus that saves you. It's not the baptism in and of itself. The emphasis is the message of salvation, the message of truth in Christ. So therefore, we need to look at this verse as what? As a process of identifying with Christ, not how you get saved. It's not how you get saved. It's how you identify with Christ. So those who truly desire to be forgiven of all their sins need to repent and trust in Jesus. They need to place their faith in Jesus. And once that happens, they identify publicly with Jesus through baptism. Baptism, by the way, if you think about it, when you, when you take a person saved by God's grace and you put them under the water and you bring them back up, what they're saying and what the Bible is saying is this, that they're dead to the old life. It's a picture of the grave. And they're raised to a new life in Jesus Christ. If that is the gospel, which mode is faithful to that representation of the gospel? Let me say it like this. Have you ever been to a funeral where your loved one is going to be properly buried and everybody says their last goodbyes and they put the body right here on the ground and let's say they take a cup of dirt and they just throw it on this dead body and then they walk away or they take a cup of dirt and they pour it and then they walk away. Would you say that is a proper burial for this person who just died? I would say no. The proper burial is put them in the ground, cover them completely, and then pray that the Lord will use this event to bring him glory. So let's translate that. What is faithful to the gospel? Which picture? Sprinkling? water, pouring water, or immersing somebody in water is the faithful representation of the biblical gospel. Dead to the old life, raised to a new life in Christ. Because you may say, well, that doesn't matter. No, it does matter. It does matter. We're people of the book. Let me just say it like this. Baptism is how you identify with Christ. 
And probably the best way I can explain it is this. Those of you who are married have one of these on your left hand. You have a ring. The ring does not signify that you're on the market, single, ready to mingle. That's not what it means at all. But the ring on your finger means I am off the market. I'm committed and dedicated to one person and one person only. And this ring is my public declaration of my love for this person. We need to connect that with baptism. No repentance, no forgiveness. The message of baptism, of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, is a message that John the Baptist believed, heralded, and spoke publicly about. If you read the rest of that verse, he went through all the region of the Jordan River, and he urged people to accept and to comply with this gospel. It reminds us, or should remind us, of Romans chapter 10, verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? That leads us to point number two. Faithful servants boldly tell the truth. Look at verse four. As it is written, the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. And he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. These verses are quoted out of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 40, to be exact. And when we look at Isaiah 40, verse 3, it says this, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. All the gospel writers affirm this verse, Isaiah 40, verse 3. They're all saying the same thing, and they all affirm that John the Baptist is the voice of one crying in the wilderness. But here's the difference. In Luke's account, he adds verse 4 and 5. In Luke's account, he adds verse 4 and 5 of Isaiah 40 to his account. And we read it, every vow shall be lifted up. And every mountain and hill be made low, and even unground or uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What is John's ministry? John's ministry is a ministry of repentance. But that ministry of repentance is preparatory, he's a forerunner of someone greater that's coming behind him. The Lord Jesus Christ. He's preparing the people. He's saying that if the highway is crooked, make it straight for the salvation of the Lord in the Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's talking in terms of opposites or contrasts. If there's a valley, we understand what a valley, we live in a valley. A valley is like a little bowl in the ground. We all live in this valley. 
But if there's a valley, raise it up and make it straight. If there's a mountain that reaches the heavens, then bring that mountain low so that it's straight and level. So that they can see the glory of God. The glory of God, by the way, is revealed in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. The Lord will bring his people to salvation. The Lord will bring his people to himself. It's amazing that when we read the Old Testament, the Lord promised judgment upon his people. Why? For their sins. God judged his own people. He put them into exile. But that's not the end of the story, praise God. He promised that he would bring his people home, that he would redeem them and bring them unto himself. So all flesh shall see God's glory in Christ. And we see that in the local church, in Christ's church. When God's people come together, they know the gospel. They preach the gospel. They teach the gospel. They share the gospel with all those that are around us. And when we look at Luke 3, verse 6, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God does not mean that everybody is saved. John the Baptist is not preaching universalism. But what he is saying is that the salvation that has come to God's people is now extending beyond the Jewish community. It goes beyond Israel. The gospel is going forth to the Gentiles. And God will save his people, both of Jews and and Gentiles. And salvation is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the message. Salvation is in the Lord Jesus Christ. But look what we learn in verse 7 through 9 about John the Baptist. The boldness of John. John addresses the crowds. He shares with them Isaiah chapter 40. These crowds come to him. They want to get baptized by John. And what does John say? He said, all of you are children and descendants of poisonous snakes. That's what he's saying. He says, who warned you to run from the danger of God's righteous, holy judgment? Who told you to run? Who told you about the danger that's coming? Who warned you about God's holy anger and fury? And then John commands them to bear fruit to produce fruit that is in proper steps with their profession of faith in Christ. In other words, their lives, their words, their actions are proper with biblical repentance. There's no contradiction there. You know, the world has a point when they say, the church is filled with a bunch of hypocrites. It's because we say one thing and we do another. So in one sense, they do have a legitimate concern, even though I don't agree with them on all their points. So their actions must connect with their biblical repentance. But what does John say? He doesn't say, you know what? Trust your Christian family. Trust your Christian upbringing. Trust your family or lineage or ethnicity, John says, no, don't trust any of that. He says, if you think you're not going to be judged for your sins simply because you're Jewish, think again. You're going to be judged for your sins. You say, well, Abraham is our 
forefather. He is our patriarch. He's our ancestor. John the Baptist says, he is your ancestor. But if you think you're not going to be judged because of your family lineage, you're wrong. If God wants to, if God wants to, he has the power and the authority to tell these rocks and stones to become children, and they would become children of Abraham, obedient children of Abraham. So John says, if you don't, guess what? There's this sharp axe that's laid at the root of these trees. And every tree that does not bear good fruit is going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. To be cut down and thrown into the fire is a picture of judgment. Judgment is coming. Fire is symbolic of judgment. He says, you say you believe in God, but your lifestyle contradicts it. Guess what? If you don't repent biblically, God is going to judge you. That's his point. He's going to judge you for your sins. And so John the Baptist knows what he believes. He says the truth in boldness. He doesn't back down from what the people think and say. And he compels others to put their hope in the Messiah, in the Christ. And when that happens, their lives match up with their Christian profession. Which leads to point number three. Genuine repentance genuinely changed life. Read with me in verse 14, or verse 10, I'm sorry. Verse 10. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. So now John the Baptist addresses three people, three types of people in the crowd. He addresses the general audience, the crowds. He addresses tax collectors and he addresses soldiers. And after these people hear the truth of God's word, they're convicted by what they hear. Because this crazy man is preaching about repentance. And that if I don't repent, I'm going to be judged. And so the people, these crowds say, well, what must I do? What am I supposed to do? And John the Baptist says, if you have a tunic, you're to give one to the one who has none. In other words, a tunic, let me just make it very simple. A tunic is an undershirt. You would wear your regular clothes, and then you would wear a tunic or an undershirt. And if you have two of them, you're to give one to the person who has none. And you're supposed to do that with food, too. If the person doesn't have food, give him food. And here's the idea. If God has blessed you with plenty, or you may be greedy, and you see your brother and sister in need, Practical repentance is this, give towards their needs. Don't hoard all this stuff for yourself. Give to those who are needy. So practical repentance looks to give to the needs of others. The second group, the tax collectors. These tax collectors were severely looked down upon 
by the Jewish community. They were considered traitors. Why were they considered traitors? Because this is the New Testament version of the IRS. These were not just Gentile tax collectors or revenue officers. These were Jewish tax collectors. And so what a Jewish tax collector would do is they would go to the Roman government, the Roman Empire, and say, Roman Emperor, I will collect on your behalf 10%. I'm just picking a number. 10%. And this will go to the furtherance of the Roman Empire. And so the Roman Emperor or those who are in officials would say, yes, thank you for collecting 10% for us. But then the Jewish tax collector would turn around and then he would add an extra 5% on top of that for his own personal pleasure, for his own personal needs. And so he would go to a Jewish tax collector, would go to his Jewish brother and sister and say, the Roman government wants you to pay them 15%. He wouldn't tell them about the 10%. But here's the sad part. The Jewish community knew that these people were lying. That's why they were considered traitors, because they were robbing and pilfering their own people. And so these tax collectors were looked down upon so much that they weren't even allowed in the Jewish synagogue for worship. They were outcasts. They were not welcomed into Jewish worship. So John says to these tax collectors, collect only what is due and no more. So practical repentance is if you're stealing and lying, then you need to stop stealing and you need to stop lying. So after the crowds, the tax collectors, finally this third and final group, the soldiers. Some people believe there was the local police. police. But nevertheless, they asked John the same question. John gave them the same answer. And he says, no longer use your authority to force others. Don't use your authority, don't use your power, don't give false accusations, false threats to put people in jail so that you can make more money. Don't lie, don't steal in order to profit. So what's the idea? Practical repentance is, again, if you're lying and stealing and abusing your authority, you need to stop that. You need to stop doing all of that. And be satisfied with your wages. Be satisfied with your compensation. So practical repentance is not the root. The gospel in the heart of a believer is the root. Practical repentance is the fruit that comes from that. It's the fruit that comes from that. So the question now becomes, are you a Christian? Are you a born-again Christian? How do you know you're a Christian? If you profess faith in Christ, does your practical repentance, how you live daily from day to day, does it match up with your profession of faith in Christ? Do your words, your actions line up with your salvation? Do you cherish the salvation that you have in Jesus? Or do you use your salvation in Jesus as a license to be greedy, to steal, to lie, to be prideful, to be angry? Are you generous with the resources that God has given you? We're all rich, by the way. 
You may say, Pastor Rollo, I only make $25,000 a year. But biblically speaking, if you have clothes on your back, food in your stomach, and two pairs of shoes minimum, according to the Bible, you're rich. The problem is we live in America and we want more. That is never enough. We want more. We're spoiled in many respects. So are you generous with the resources God has given you? Those aren't yours, by the way. Spoiler alert. You're stewards. You're managers. You're custodians. God has given you life. God has given you breath. God has given you talents and abilities. God has given you financial resources. You're supposed to steward that for the glory of God. All of that belongs to Him. You're to use that for His glory. Are you hypocritical in word and deed? You love to tell people about Jesus. You love to tell people you're a Christian. But then you take an extra 30, 45 minutes, an hour for lunch. You clock in late and you leave early. I hope you understand you're stealing time. You fudge on your IRS tax return. That's called lying. You can hide that stuff, and we can hide that stuff from each other, but we can't hide that stuff from God. That's sin. We're living hypocritical lives. You know, if Jesus were to stand before you right now, what would he think about your practical repentance? What you've said about Jesus, you said, I've committed my life to Jesus, but then what you say and what you do Monday through Saturday doesn't line up with what you believe on Sunday. I know these are tough questions, brothers and sisters in Christ, but we need to seriously ponder these. We need to seriously think about this. The reason that the world says many times the church is full of hypocrites is because we live hypocritical lives. And we need to come to grips with this. We need to come to terms with this. And we need to actually evaluate our own hearts before God and say, Lord, forgive me for this sin. Forgive us for these sins. We've lived for ourselves. We look to you as our cosmic genie. Give me, give me, give me. And we're greedy and prideful and angry and frustrated because we live for ourselves. There's a scholar in the modern century, and I mean that in the literal sense, a theologian. And this is what he says about repentance. He says, true repentance never exists except in conjunction with faith. While on the other hand, wherever there is true faith, there's also real repentance. So he says, if there's true faith, there's true repentance together. The two are but different aspects of the same turning. A turning away from sin in the direction of God, the two cannot be separated. They're simply complementary parts of the same process. So if you have true faith, you should have true repentance. If you don't have true repentance, could it be, dear friend, you've never truly repented? Could it be the reason you don't have true faith is because you've never truly repented? In other words, God has given us faith in him. Faith is a gift from God. And if we are born again, that faith will show itself in true repentance. That's what I mean. 
True faith leads to true repentance. Repentance doesn't necessarily lead to faith. Because we have many people who are trying to repent, but they do it unbiblically. And it never leads to faith. Repentance is a gift from God. Practically speaking, faith and repentance are always connected. And so we need to understand if there's no repentance, there's no forgiveness. You know, when we say to others, you know, you've sinned against me, but I forgive you, and there's no repentance, is that really forgiveness? Because we're dealing with sin. They're still in their sin. Faithful servants boldly tell the truth. Genuine repentance should lead to a genuinely changed life. Sermon in a sentence. Gospel-centered Christians have a responsibility to call all people to a biblical repentance and live by the same. Use the life that God has given you, the air that God has given you, the breath that God has given you, the energy that God has given you, and tell others boldly about him. Make no excuse for the gospel. The gospel, the, gospel, the biblical gospel is naturally offensive. Just present it in a firm but loving, gracious way. But we're also called to live a life of biblical repentance. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time that you've given us. We know that faith and repentance is a gift from you. And unless you give that to us, O oh God, how will we exercise any of that? So, Lord, we pray that you would help us. Lord, we are your children by your grace. Lord, you've been merciful to us and good and kind to us. We know that you love us. You gave us Christ Jesus, your one and only Son. And we believe in him as our Lord and Savior unto salvation. So, Lord, forgive us where we have failed you and sinned against you. Forgive us, O Lord, when we have lived hypocritical lives. Help us now. Help us, Lord, for the glory of your name we pray. In Christ, amen.